Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Look at just about any greatest albums of all time list, and you'll see a record called Exile in Guyville by Liz Fair. It was Fair's debut record, released in 1993. It put her on the map as a singer-songwriter. The production was no frills. The songwriting was personal, at some points tongue-in-cheek at others. It inspired a bunch of bands, Foo Fighters, Courtney Barnett, even Olivia Rodrigo. After the success of Guyville, rock writers and critics figured they had Liz Fair pretty much figured out. She was a heartfelt singer-songwriter, a rocker. Then, in 2003, she threw them a curve. Liz Fair recorded her first-ever major-label record, called just Liz Fair. She collaborated with writers and producers who had previously worked with Britney Spears and Avril Lavigne. The album polarized writers at the time. Some thought it was a fun summer pop album. Others dismissed it as trivial. With her fans, though, it confirmed something they'd known for a long time. Liz Fair will not be boxed in. And it could be that one of Liz's biggest fans is Louis Vertel. Louis is a friend of our show. He is also a brilliant writer and comedian. He co-hosts the podcast Keep It. He writes for Jimmy Kimmel Live. He has one of the absolute best Twitter feeds in the game. So when we heard about Liz Fair's brand new album, Soberish, we knew Louis was the perfect person for her to talk with. Before we get into Lewis's interview with Liz, let's kick things off with a song off of Soberish. This is Good Side. Gonna leave you with my good side. Gonna leave you with my good side. So I'm not calling, coming to the party, thinking up ways to make you want me. I like what we had, and that's as good as it gets. Liz Fair, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you, Lewis. It's so nice to be here. I'm thrilled to be interviewing you, specifically because I was thinking of what unites all of your albums, and listening to that lyric from Good Side, there's so many ways to f*** up a life, I try to be original. You are one of the few lyricists I can think of who is reliably funny. Like, <laughs> almost always, there's a funny lyric. Like, I actually have to slap the table. It's so good. <laughs> How important is it for you to be funny when writing emotional music? Very important because it feels to me like when something's actually funny, it's been boiled down to its simplest form. It's like the essence of the thing. The The least amount of words convey the most amount of human foible. 
And so like, if you can be funny, if you can actually be funny in a song, you totally understand your subject. Were you always funny growing up? <laughs> you, you seem like you sort of stumbled into becoming a performer. So I don't know that you're somebody who would be like a ham growing up, but you have this like sly sense of humor in everything you do. So I was wondering if you were the funny person growing up. I wasn't. I wasn't, Lewis. I wasn't. I was surrounded by big personalities, though. My brother was hilarious. Hilarious. Huge, huge personality. My mom is pretty funny. She's pretty witty. My dad has good timing. He has good timing mm. to tell a joke. And uh, I was shy and probably just listened and absorbed all of their funniness, you know, and their love of wit, their love of wordplay. What's interesting to me is, uh, speaking of your upbringing, this is one of the first albums of yours where I've heard you physically describe Chicago outside of maybe Stratford on Guy where you're flying into Chicago. But I've, I was surprised to realize I don't hear you talk about Lakeshore Drive on other albums. What was it about uh, recording this disc that made you go back to Chicago in the first place? You know, I don't know why, but I was nostalgic before 2020 happened. And then through circumstances that overtook all of us, I became even more so. So this has been a very nostalgic time for me through accident and also by design. And it just, it felt like the right time to put to rest. I feel like I had to, in the interest of finding a good relationship, I had to, in my mind at least, finish off any loose ends, kind of put to bed everything that still was attached to me. Does that make sense? I mean, if you have loose ends, though, that's really <laughs> bad news for the rest of us because nobody seems to have closed the door on relationships and songs in a way that you have. So I'm actually discouraged by that answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, when you make a record, do you dread headlines with plays on the word fair? Because as your fan, I need you to know that I dread it. Like, it's so constant. <laughs> it's like always a, an affair to remember or See, no. turnabout is fair play or whatever. I have missed it. I feel like they were, I don't know, they've shrunk away in shame for how many awful puns they've made. But I was waiting for a new slew, especially, I think, I think the universe is saving it up for my next book, which I've tentatively titled Fairy Tales because, I mean, it just like, it's the elephant in the room. So like, Maybe it's all just, it's like the tide pulling way out before a tsunami. And when the second book comes, it'll just be like fair apocalypse, fair topia. No, I saw you mention this before, and I assume this means it's a companion piece to your last book, Horror Stories, which was, to my eyes, specifically written to freak yourself out and revisit <laughs> every horrible moment in your life. Kind of. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, so my editor called, called it my spell book. He felt that with each story, I was exorcising a demon within me, which is an interesting take. He grew up in Texas in like a Bible thumping part of Texas. Oh, wow. But so, like, if that's the prompt of your book to exorcise, does that mean your publisher got to push you to go even harder and reveal even more and basically make it even more awful for yourself? What was writing that book like and the process of pushback? There were a number of situations in which I was either gently nudged or all out kicked into the dark closet of my subconscious, you know, where I didn't want to go. 
I think I feel pretty open and I have the reputation artistically of being open with, I don't know, whatever is unresolved in your life for good or bad. But this was a particular sense of you're copping out if you don't deliver the full, you know, I don't know. There was an expectation that I set up that I had to live up to. So it was one of those where they're like, this is what you need to do if you say you're going to do it kind of thing. Yeah, there was, especially in the Me Too chapter, the hashtag chapter, that was hard. I wrote that in one long, angry scree, like, (laughs) you know, like, because I didn't want to do the assignment. I didn't want to add that story, even though it's, it definitely needed to be there. That was one where my editing team was like, I think you should do this. And I didn't want to do it, which is weird. And specifically, you wrote an album with uh, Ryan Adams that was shelved. And what's it like having to write about someone? I'm sure because he's already in the news for this particular reason. So you have to respond to this pre-existing perception of who he is or add to a perception of who he's become. Is there a strange obligation to add to that narrative? I felt an obligation. This is about a producer that I'd worked with and the project never happened fully. It never got completed because we were having so many problems. And then I put it in the rearview mirror and like went on to something else. And then he was under investigation. Is that, I mean, I'm trying to remember what the actual charges were. He wasn't actually charged, was he? Right. No, but the stories came out, et cetera. Okay. So it was an expose and it was backed up by an FBI inquiry, whatever. And I realized that my obligation was to back up the women that had come forward to say that he had either prevented their career from moving forward or been emotionally abusive of his position, sexual harassment, job, that kind of stuff. And I had experienced enough with him that I felt if I didn't say, yeah, this is not off character, then I wasn't supporting them. Does that make sense? Right. <clears throat> like, like if you had anything to say, you should say it. What's interesting is you're one of the few people I can think of who part of your legend is also wrapped up in My the legend. way you wrote. <laughs> yes. You're, <laughs> you're desperado. <laughs> is fair. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Uh, a major part of your legacy is wrapped up in how you've written your famous music that you were sitting around your apartment and you wrote the tapes that became Girly Sound, which became Exile and Guyville. And you've written several albums since then. And my question is, when has writing been the most fun for you? And does anything compare to that initial experience where you're just saying, F- it, I'll write whatever I want. There's no expectation that anyone will hear this. And then lo and behold, it becomes a phenomenon. I wish it happened that easily. That that last part of your question sounds like heaven. Like, I just wrote this easily and it became a phenomenon. Like, God, I wish that would happen. It honestly is the most fun when I give myself a new challenge. And because I've built up a number of skills over the years, I'm good at it without having to like learn every little bit and part. And I'm thinking specifically of a song that didn't even really come out. It was an extra EP that was given when people bought my eponymous album, which was on Capitol, the Liz Fair, Liz Fair with 
with the Matrix songs, with like, with yes. Why Can't I? And there's this little song called Jeremy Engel. And it was on- I love on, that song. It's a great song and so funny. Some of the lyrics It's so too. funny. And it's like a little bit. It's almost like a little comedy bit. And it came entirely unusually. I wrote this poem, a sort of spoken word poem in my mind. And then I put it to music in this funny way. I don't write like that. This is a unique piece of writing, but it has continued to resonate. People who have no right to have even heard it have heard this song because it's just so great. So like when something unusual like that happens and it works, it feels like magic. And of course I love it because it, it's like being young again. Speaking of that album, uh, the first track on it was called Extraordinary. And I want to listen to a clip of that right now. Because... Now, what's interesting is this became a, a lightning rod album in your career, your pop turn, where you had these producers who did Avril Lavigne's music beforehand. And in the ensuing interviews afterwards, you would sometimes have contentious interviews with reporters, critics about it. But weirdly, extraordinary to me, almost seems to predict this kind of reaction, where the point of the song is, I have more dimensions than you know, stop pretending I'm just this one thing, your perception is limited. So was it in fact an unsurprising reaction to this album that you got? Interestingly, Lewis, I have been getting in trouble with the press or the media's reaction, their initial reaction, let's say, since the first record. Everyone looks back at Guyville and says, is it hard to live up to this wonderful moment in your career? And it is in a way, but it's also like a memory that when that first came out, people were upset that other critics liked it so much. There was a bunch of sort of controversy and this idea that I was a provocative artist, how dare she? She's using her sexuality to garner all of this attention. And so to me, I expect to come into contact with unexpected forces. I guess I'm a tripwire for it. I don't know what that is about my personality that just keeps dragging into the wrong, I don't know. But (laughs) yeah. That was an interesting experience to have. And you're right. There was a part of me that kind of expects to encounter upset press explaining my work. And I almost feel like I haven't done my Liz Fair job if I don't get some. I almost feel inadequate if I don't get some. And it's not, I swear to you, I was not a kid that was like, I'm going to stir up controversy. Like, you know, I was doing what every other rock kid was doing. I want to be, there's a splashiness to it, but it's not intended to upset or cause ire, at least not in my case. It's interesting that to me that you have this interaction with the press because you write like a critic to me. And in fact, I remember you wrote a review of Keith Richards' memoir years ago. It felt like you specifically have the literary skill set of a music critic. And I was wondering if it's weird to relate to the people who are criticizing you sometimes, if you read their writing and think, oh, that sounds like me in a way, or I could be doing that job. (laughs) I do think it's weird. And I think that it maybe is why 
we have a, it's almost sibling-like, you know, the barbs that I have traded with the press have always been with a grudging acceptance of our familial relationship that ultimately writers are writers. I believe that. And I believe that dancers are writers, you know, when they, I really truly believe that narrative underlies almost all the creative arts and that it's broad, it's broad category. And I would much rather be in fights with my peers than with the general public. Things like the controversy that you get when Dixie Chicks say something political and their career is impacted in kind of a book burning sense. That gives me chills of terror as an entirely different thing to squabbling with a colleague, you know, that I kind of enjoy if they're good. Yeah, I prefer it stay art based too. I don't need <laughs> yeah. any don't need anybody let's venturing into the Sinead universe. Yeah, yeah. let's look like whatever that is, like the, you know. <laughs> Uh, I have a question about the Exile and Guyville track, Never Said, which we'll play a little bit of right here. So famously... This album is a list of responses to Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones. And never said, if I line them up correctly, would be lined up with Tumbling Dice, which I have to recommend the Linda Ronstadt version above all others. But <laughs> is that a direct response to that song specifically? Because it's, I think, one of the most interesting juxtapositions on the album. Yes, it is a direct response. And it was one that I had to take seriously because I developed this idea that that Exile on Main Street was actually the template for a perfect rock record. And it occupied the fifth position, which I made little symbols for. I called it a big song. It was like a big song. So you're supposed to lead off with a big song and then number five is really supposed to kick it in there. So I knew Never Said had to be my version, my response to Tumbling Dice. Never Said had to be like a big song you know, kind of a big rock, you you settle into the pocket, you lean back on the downbeat. And the way it lyrically matched was the guy that I was writing about, my rock star, my Mick Jagger in the neighborhood, had kind of been pulling back from me, like our romance was not going the way I was hoping. <laughs> and he was with this very sophisticated woman, I just assumed she was from like the East Coast or something. She came into the bar with him. So I made up in my mind to cover my feelings that that I had talked about them. They were very, they were rock stars. And this is so embarrassing that I'm actually answering this question because it's so intimate. So I took tumbling dice to be like, look, lady, I like you, but I like all these other women too. You just got to catch me on the right night, you know, call me the tumbling dice. Like you can, you can be with me, but like, you got to get used to women. I have a lot of women and I got to be free, you know? And so I'm saying I never said anything. Cause like, I think he's mad at me, but in retrospect, he was never mad at me. It was more like, 
how I felt our separation could be most flattering. This is a fairy tale. I made up a story about what was really happening as like, because I had been a little proud of our romance. Like their celebrity in the neighborhood made me feel like I had maybe talked a little bit about who I was dating. Mm. So does that make any sense? Yeah, it's going awry and you're addressing that. And uh, I had maybe worn the fact that I was dating someone that people would be interested to know I was dating a little bit too loudly. So I was assuming that that's why we were estranged. But actually, no, the tumbling dice thing shows he's just a rock star and that's the life. I'm no more problematic than any of the other women who are pissed at him all over the country. And for those who can't see our Zoom right now, Liz just did a shruggy <laughs> shoulder things as if yeah, she was Joan so Collins good. on Dynasty. Like she was strutting into whatever Wicker Park bar wearing I a full fuchsia hurt. pantsuit with giant shoulders I or something. still hurt. Like how could he not recognize the diamond in the rough that I was? How could he not love me? Oh, well. But we recognize it. Don't you understand? That's the mm. triumph of this moment. That's all that matters, Lewis. That's all that matters. Even more On Tap with Liz Fair. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically with no limit on how much you can earn. It's amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So, when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash match. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. The economy is changing so fast right now, and sometimes it seems like there's something new to worry about every day. On The Indicator from Planet Money, we bring you human stories and easy-to-understand explanations to help you make sense of these crazy times, all in just 10 minutes a day. That's The Indicator from Planet Money. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is Liz Fair. She's a veteran singer-songwriter who recorded songs like Supernova, Never Said, and Why Can't I? Her newest record, which just came out, is called Soberish. Interviewing her is writer and comedian Louis Vertel. Let's get back into it. I always think it's funny that critics seem to ask you, you know, how do you feel about Exile and Guyaval all these years later? But I'm more curious, what do you think about the self-titled album all these years later? Because your style as a writer, I think, has evolved since then as in a major way, too. Yeah, it has. That still feels like I was enthralled to classic rock a little bit more than... And I've crossed some kind of line into much more interested in design, um, the drama in, I don't know, soundscaping, I guess. The sort of operatic, more longer compositions I'm interested in. And whatever section of that I might cut off as a song, I loved at the beginning of this new album, Soberish, running into the studio to tell Brad that Old Town Road was like the biggest song in the country. And it's two minutes long. I'm like, do you understand what that means? We are free, my friend. Like, take off the shackles of the three-minute pop song. Like, I just felt like we had full license to 
say something is as compelling, even if it's pushing the boundaries of format. And I believe we're living in that time right now. And that, you know, any kind of experimental, I believe that the 60s to 70s are happening again. Everyone has their own take on post-COVID. I'd be very interested to know your take, Lewis, in particular. What do you think is coming? Like, what decade are we in for? And do you believe there's a an historical precedent? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I feel like we all live in Pinterest board universe where <laughs> every decade is occurring at all times. Like everyone is constantly a little bit aware of every decade now. I don't know that there's a lot of comprehension about whatever, the 50s, the 70s, even the 90s. But I feel like it's never fair to say we're in one wave because it, it's like there's always an excuse to bring back something retro and on TV and movies. And, and we capture those aesthetics so uh, specifically yeah. nowadays, you know? So I feel like we're going to unfortunately get everything. So, and, and fortunately get everything. What are you planning to do for this next decade? What's your spirit animal going to be? Oh God. Well, something in the back of my head is I just want more people to know about Cass Elliot. I, I don't know what I want to do. I just want to get her, her face out there. Okay. So it's a late sixties thing. I'm very Cass concerned Elliot. with right now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any like, um, figures you were obsessed with that you wish more people knew about? Um, I just enjoyed the um, Franca Susani, the designer, the fashion oh, sure. designer. Franca, mm-hmm. Italian Vogue, the editor of Italian Vogue, who was such a groundbreaking eye. I don't know. Like, I'm thinking of women who have recently either sort of culminated their careers I guess I'm looking at the end of my career. So I'm looking at all the people that designed their career really well and ended really well so I can craft. You know, I'm obsessed with that. No, that's interesting to me because you just said, I'm looking at the end of my career. Where it's like, you, you clearly, are, <laughs> you're, you're like 54. You're the end of what? But you but, also are threatening to retire. And I saw that in a recent interview that you would maybe do one more album. Now, where does this come from? Because as you know, this is, as, as in case it doesn't read, this disturbs Because me. there's like a whole rigmarole that I always forget when I take time off about how to put a record out. You have to, like, there's a game. There's two sides of this. There's making art. And then there's getting in the, the record buying game or selling game. You know, like that side of it is hard for someone like me to break into. So people have to work really hard because it's just too, I don't know, unexpected, maybe. Like you think you know what you're getting and then you get, you crack my song open a little bit and you're like, what? (laughs) Like, what did you just say? You know? Speaking of what else is coming, um, you mentioned having a book called Fairy Tales, but did you ever go into what would be in that book specifically? Would this be the opposite of horror stories and that here are the highs of my life? Or would it be uh, fantastical? What would it be? It is. It's interesting. It's about the way my brain works when I'm having, whenever I'm having the best time of my life, I have helped concoct that moment. There's a bit of lying to myself that's occurred Like I've almost told myself a fairy tale of what the best day that could occur in this circumstance would be. So it's all about this. I'm capturing moments that are legitimately cool, you know, big glory moments, rock and roll moments, but that also I have woven into a story of how I want this to go and whether or not they actually do go that way or if it's unexpected, how they end up going. What is a glory moment you're looking forward to Everyone, visiting. 
I don't want to say what they are. Like someone just asked me one, so I'm going to use that one. There was a point at the beginning of the pandemic that there was this phosphorescent algae bloom happening along the Pacific Ocean. And I realized that though we were all locked in our houses, I could escape at night and go down to the beach because we live nearby. And there was this entirely nocturnal side to my community that I didn't know existed. So getting to know the characters that I would see repeatedly or like the drama that was happening in the middle of the night during the beginning of a pandemic when everyone is specifically at home. It was just mm-hmm. interesting. And speaking of the pandemic, how does it feel to have this album out right now when we're having this convalescent moment as a society and maybe looking forward to, you know, being alive and looking forward to experiencing art again? Does it feel fortuitous that it would come out now? Um, the soberishness of it, certainly, because... I think we've all clung to a life raft or two in our own lives of like how we're going to weather this um, assault on our mental health. I hope I'm not wrong to be excited to think that I can be a teenager again, that I can feel that sense of, I recognize a sense of, oh my God, I can go out, but I'm also scared of doing something wrong. (laughs) Like that feels very young adult to me. So I hope it's going to be like that. I don't know. I mean, I hope America can back that up and people can experience a relatively unperturbed decade. Uh, Coming up, you're also going to be performing and supporting Alanis Morissette on tour. And I just read an awesome transcript of a chat you had with her at the LA Times. And man, you guys really seem like kindreds or something. Like you're you're very kind of um, thrilled to find each other and thrilled to relate to each other. Is that surprising? And have you made surprising friends out of colleagues over the years that you didn't expect? I recognized Alanis as a kindred spirit when she first released Jagged Little Pill. When that album, I specifically remember I had already moved out of the Wicker Park bohemian scene in Chicago into my grown-up Lincoln Park new mother home. You know, like, I'm a young married. And it was like... I recognized why she was putting this out. I recognized the person that she was and the bravery, I guess, for it just, it resonated with me. I'm so excited to go out with her and Shirley. They are both tremendous women for different reasons. And they're both really supportive and inclusive. I'm I think it's going to be high, gay old times in the old town tonight. Like, we are going to get into trouble probably more than any other tour I've ever been on. I'm actually super grateful that I named it Soberish because I think that's almost, I was going to be more sober when I first named it Soberish than I'm going to be on this tour. (laughs) Clever. Nicely (laughs) done. Yes, right? Obviously, the Jagged Little Pill musical will be back on Broadway shortly, which brings me to your origin story, which feels very suited to a musical. Could you absorb or watch your story unfold in like a a Broadway format? Because to me, it feels like a perfect fit, like, you know, a Carole King beautiful sort of situation. I think that it would be a really good idea. I think it would be a great show. I want to see, like, I mean, who is the right person to do that? 
<laughs> you know, Amazing like, question. Yeah. Good idea, Lewis. <laughs> no, because you really, you, you don't want to spoil whatever personal, a, a show like that can feel almost like it has the stamp of approval that, that that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. Or it can be a totally different take. It can be something, either, either way is effective. I just, I would want to be careful. I feel like Exile in Guyville has a space to it, an airiness where nothing's happening in a way. Definitely. So how, how would you do that? What, you know, would it feel like the album if you filled all that in with dialogue? Yeah, I don't know how you would do shatter in a Broadway show. Just like li- living in the <laughs> yeah. yeah the atmosphere of a song for a while. But maybe you'd be breaking new ground in that way. Yeah. Speaking of that album, I want to play a clip from well, one of the great songs. Just period. Divorce song. And when I asked for a separate room, it was late at night, and we've been driving since noon. But if I'd known how that would sound to you, I would have stayed in This song to me, for you, is like You're Both Sides Now by Joni Mitchell in that it's one of the first things you released, but it's about experience and the weight of experience. And I'm wondering... Does this song grow with you? Do you feel this song more as the years go on or are you like more alienated from it uh, all these years later? I would I would say that I feel like I understand what I'm talking about so much better. And the way I perform it live though is the way I wrote it, which was before I had any knowledge of like what actual ripping a part of long-term relationships is like. But there was a kind of a sense, even when I was young, because I don't know about you, but I went through shorter, multiple relationships when I was young. I'd be like, two years, da, 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 da. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I was like, and I think even then, the sense of recklessness at how precious human intimacy is when you find it, and what a leap of faith it is to get naked with someone and like really share. And that you are being kind of reckless. And like, I do think that there is a recognition even amongst the most liberal pirates, which I consider young adults to be, that it does matter that like the echoes of this will stay with you. You don't just get out of something and not feel it. You know, it will be with you forever. All your actions kind of, do add up. There's something beautiful about thinking about the early work coupled with the later work where the actions, the consequences have landed and you're like, ah, well, (laughs) this is what it looks like when you've blown your (laughs) life up. Like, yeah, it's interesting. The comeuppance records later on. The comeuppance records later on. Inevitable. We'll finish up with Liz Fair after a quick break. Still to come, the time she wrote a song about the late Lou Reed, then played it for his widow. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from Culturel. Culturel wants you to know that an estimated 45 million Americans may have IBS, according to the International Foundation for Gastrointestinal Disorders. 
Culturel IBS Complete Support is a medical food for the dietary management of IBS. It's designed to relieve symptoms like abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea, and constipation in a safe, well-tolerated, once-daily dose. Save 20% with promo code RADIO on culturel.com. Since the dawn of time, screenwriters have taken months to craft their stories. But now, three Hollywood professionals shall attempt the impossible. Break a story in one hour. That's right. Here on Story Break, I, Freddie Wong, Matt Arnold, and Will Campos, the creators behind award-winning shows like Video Game High School, have one hour to turn a humble idea into an awesome movie. Now, an awesome movie starts with an awesome title. I chose The Billionaire's Marriage Valley. Mine was Christmas Pregnant Paradise. <laughs> okay, next we need a protagonist. So I've heard Wario best described as libertarian, Mario. <laughs> and of course, every great movie needs a stellar pitch. In order to get to heaven, sometimes you gotta raise a little hell. <laughs> That's the tagline! Check out Story Break every week on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is Liz Fair, the singer-songwriter behind the legendary rock album Exile in Guyville. She has a new record out called Soberish. She's being interviewed by Louis Vertel. Are there any songs you don't like performing anymore? The only song that I don't like performing lately was Flower or Hot White HWC, if you need to edit that out. Uh, Because Trump felt like so douchey guy, like horrible person, that it wasn't fun to bring forward the submissiveness, the surrender. It felt jarring, didn't feel right. I don't know why, but I know that it was a strong instinct that like the world doesn't, because that was always a political play. That song was always political in some ways. So the play changes, like, so how I play acted in songs, how I've sort of taken on a persona or a side of myself will sometimes strike the wrong way. It's very interesting. You have to Songs are, I, I don't know, they, they feel like they're always changing what they mean to you at different times in your life, in front of different crowds. I like that about them. They're complex. They're like, you have to keep tending to your little living plants or something, you know? They're alive. They don't take a lot of attention, but they're alive. Luckily, though, on this album, you do have a song called Bad Kitty that will satisfy the... <laughs> The, f- the fans of the profanity and the... <laughs> how is that song where you, you describe your P asterisk, asterisk, asterisk Y um, beautifully, by the way. Uh, Thank you. How, how does that song stand apart from these other ones that you feel um, reticent about performing? Um, Bad Kitty has, I hope, a sort of a post-sexism feel to it because it makes sense, it doesn't make sense. Life makes sense, life doesn't make sense. All my resolve is both still manifest and also thrown to the wind in that song, just like cast off, like, ah. Um, so I, that is the perfect description of, I guess, the hot girl in middle age. It's just kind of this, like, ah. I'm a goddess, but I've gotten a little reckless because it all doesn't really 
matter and I'm an older goddess now. It's like, there's a, I don't know. I like it encapsulates something that you don't see a lot of. You see more of it now in TV, film, music, the experience of middle age while undefeated. I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, You brought up Brad Wood before, who you've uh, now collaborated with on this album. The last time you worked with him was White Chocolate Space Egg, correct? Which is your third album. Now, working with an old collaborator, are you immediately daunted? Are you immediately like, well, this has to measure up to some legacy we already have? Like, why add to this? Or do do you just go in thinking, well, this is somebody I trust? I did. I went in thinking, I know he'll make it sound good. Like, Brad and I don't get into fights about whether it sounds good. He always makes everything sound good. We do get into fights about like what we think cool is. Like his idea of what cool is and what my idea of what cool is are different sometimes. So that would be the area. But like, it's such a pleasure to go into the studio with someone that you've known through your musical collaboration after a gap of like 20 years and just have that trust that doesn't matter what we do. Cause whatever we do, if we're both happy with it, it's going to be good. That was fun. Did you have any memorable, um, productive arguments? Mm. Here was a beautifully resolved one that could have become an argument. Um, the story of Hey Lou, that song, it had entirely different lyrics, different melody. It was about a different thing. And I wasn't happy with it. I just thought it wasn't good enough. I'm like, you know, this is like, let's only put on stuff that we feel surprises us and delights us. Like, and (laughs) it had been a little awkward because he was kind of like tap, tap. Are we going to get anything done again today? Because I was worrying over the song and he was working on a loop and he goes, check this out. When I play this loop in the chorus, you hear this artifact that it sounds like you're saying, hey, Lou, because it went like, da 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 hey, Lou, da 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 hey, Lou. And he just looked at me and he goes, wouldn't it be a gas if this were a song about Lou Reed from Laurie Anderson's point of view? And just that instant connection of that's a brilliant idea. And we're like in this SNL writer's room and we just dropped everything. And really started laughing so hard there were like tears running down our cheeks. Are you on the junk again? Your eyes look dead But your mouth keeps moving on and on We're losing all of our friends Pretty soon it's gonna be just you Writing the lyrics, you know, he'd say something and I'd be like, no, that's too harsh. We're not putting that in because, you know, we would like a vague sense that Laurie Anderson might hear it someday. She really was going to, though. That was scary. So that was just the best part of songwriting. It was the first song that Brad and I ever wrote together. We'd never collaborated on anything before. And for it to be spontaneous and hilarious and cute and adorable and just timeless because the characters involved are people that we know and love. It was what, what isn't magical about that? No, you both had this baked in knowledge base about Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson. I take it. 
Like, yeah. did you both, have you discussed him before? How did this, how did this synthesis occur? I mean, we, I don't think we did this time around, but we both had discussed them before because we idolized them. One of the things that Brad and I have in common is that we both liked Laurie Anderson and Lou Reed before they got together. Like, so, like they really were our sort of favorite celebrity couple. And we shared that. She is a pretty intimidating celebrity, though. Did you just say she almost heard your song, or did you get oh, no. feedback from her? I sent the letter and the whole album, actually, and the video. And I did not hear back, which I took as a tacit, I know it was a good email. So I took that as, I don't like it, <laughs> but I'm not going to stop you. Like, I respect your artistry, but I'm not going to engage with you. So I felt that was very good. That was a definite good outcome compared to what could be. That's about as close as you want to get to someone like that. It's like, just like, I don't need to meet Fran Leibowitz. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't need, like, I don't need to hear how dismiss. I don't need to, you right? to do the dismissiveness right? thing at me. Yes. <laughs> I don't need to be dismissed that out of like that, that easily. Cause they could just both like bing and like, <laughs> you'd be toast. There goes. Yeah, absolutely toast. And that's what we love about them. That's why I couldn't get up to meet Joni Mitchell. You know, that's what like that glued me to the couch, the opportunity that I had to meet an idol. And I was like glued to the couch. So intimidated. Where were you? What was the situation? I was with Michael Penn. I think we were mastering the music we'd done for the my pop album. Yes, friend of mine. One of my favorite Liz Fair songs. But I don't think it maybe it was that night. I get really confused about nights. But anyway, we were in a studio where Joni Mitchell was also recording. And Michael came into the room where I was sitting just off the kitchen. And he goes, Joni's in the kitchen. Come now, like now. And I felt like in a dream where you're trying to move because the spider's coming. You can't get up off the stairs. Like I was like, you know, just like trying to go meet Joni Mitchell. And it killed me. It just... Everything that she is and represents in culture just was in the air around us. It was just like, it was heavy with just, it is like meeting a demigod or something. It does feel like a disruption in the space-time continuum to meet somebody like that. Like it's not supposed to happen really. Yeah. And like they do carry with them everyone else's expectations that they collected that day or that week. Like you can see in the way they react to you and- yeah. I'm actually a little not surprised that you would be that stunned by Joni Mitchell, but I associate your like upbringing with like male classic rock really. But like was Joni, you know, a, a template like person for you? The 50th anniversary of Blue just happened, so I've been mainlining that album again. Me too. And it's so funny because I was a Court and Spark person. That's what I grew up Ooh. with. So I had this weird Blue just wasn't my thing. And I actually said it aloud to my publicist because she was asking about quotes and stuff. I'm like, I'm a court and spark person. And I've been so ashamed by that response, like thinking that like somehow the forces, the wind whipped up and like the witches of the West Coast were like, she is not one of us, you know? (laughs) And I've been like literally listening to Blue over and over again, like weeping at its glory and its beauty. So yeah, I'm deep into the Joni Mitchell catalogs. Have you switched over as a to to being yes, a blue person? You think? I know. Oh wow! I'm, I'm I kind of thought that was impossible for a court and spark no, person. No, no, I am fully. I I feel yes. My 
re-education is complete. I am deeply attuned to why, not just that I love it, but it is kind of like if I wrote Guyville, I should only care about blue. Like it is, <laughs> do you know, it's almost, yeah. I always felt like I was not sophisticated enough for Court and Spark because there's like songs on that album where like Berkeley college students sit and figure out the chords and like unpack musically how she broke the system and I'm like I kind of just want to talk about being in California like that's it you know (laughs) yes like just pour some more yeah that's exactly but I see now that the unusual arrangements of blue are more sophisticated because they are heedless of tradition and canonical song structure that is why they are so sophisticated because at first listen you think okay not really finishing that song. Okay. You know what I mean? And like now I feel the deep drama across the arc of the album. If you were in a Shark Tank situation and Joni were the shark, what song would you play for her of yours? To soothe her? Yes. Oh, I do feel she is that dismissive too. I feel like she's that level. God, God, God. Oh, maybe Little Digger, it's possible. She would Mm. find, I don't think structurally she would care. But I think she might find the subject matter interesting. Fliss Fair, thank you for joining me on Bullseye. And thanks for the awesome new record, Soberish. And thanks for spilling everything in this book, Horror Stories. You really left it out on the floor, and I (laughs) remain worried about you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for this great interview, Lewis. I really appreciated it. Liz Fair, everyone. Her new album is called Soberish. You can buy it from your local record shop. Our thanks to our pal, Louis Vertel, for conducting the interview. Uh, Louis, one of the funniest people on earth. He co-hosts the podcast, Keep It, on Crooked Media. You should check that out. And and for goodness sakes, you should follow Louis on Twitter because the level of humor and insight in his tweets is just breathtaking. It's a real, it's a real kick in the pants to everybody else on Twitter. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around Los Angeles, California. We are once in a while inside the office these days. My producer Kevin was at our office overlooking beautiful MacArthur Park, and he saw a man riding his bicycle down the ramp that goes into the lake to scare away geese or something. But... Then his bike fell over in the water and he got all gross and wet. So our thoughts are with that guy. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer, Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. The Go Team's new record, Get Up Sequences, part one, is out now. It is hot. Go get it. Go team, they rule. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.